Howdy. This is Vosh. You may know me from the YouTube channel, Vosh, where I livestream. Most of it's garbage, but sometimes the good bits get uploaded here. This is Previously Live. So lately, I've been getting a lot of emails of people asking me, how do I navigate the social situation with a person who's reactionary or some right winger is giving me a hard time at work or my parents are doing this or that, or I have a friend or family member who's having a similar issue and what can I do in this specific context? To which my answer over email is, wow, that's a big question. I don't know, because <laughs> that would, you know, that's not the easiest thing to answer on a case-by-case -case basis. I've made videos on rhetoric before, but they're a little bit old. It, it never hurts to refresh some of the, the primers. So I'm going to keep this video pretty clean, at least by the standards of a video of mine. And, um, you know, if, if you need any advice on that, you know, if you need advice in what is effectively rhetoric, then I'd like to talk to you for a moment, okay? Now, we live in a very unique point in history, and I mean unique in a bad way here. Uh, we have advanced to a point where there is such a heightened social anxiety around certain issues that even talking about them can be dangerous. If you are uh, gay or transgender uh, and, you know, there are people on your case for that, the decision to have an argument with them, to defend yourself, to confront them on the things they've said or believe, that could potentially be the wrong thing to do. Not because you're wrong, but because you might not be able to convince them and you might only worsen the conditions that you live under. So the first thing to keep in mind is, is safety. And, and to be to be clear, I don't think that I don't think the average person is going to be like attacked in the street because they engaged in any of these topics. But like a good example would be um, uh, with your parents. You know, if your parent, if you're like trans or gay and your parents are on your case, well, you probably know that a significant portion of young people who are homeless got kicked out of their parents' house for being gay or trans or whatever else. So you know there is kind of an implicit threat to arguing with them. I just want you to be aware of stuff like that because I don't want you to, you know, get all rhetoric-brained and get it up in your head, uh, like, yeah, I'm going to take on all these people, and then, like, your life just gets worse. That's not a good idea. Uh, if, if it's not a good idea to argue with someone, if you can't change their mind, if arguing will only exacerbate the problems, maybe just don't. That might feel bad, but, you know, we're just purely talking about what improves your life here, you know? Your decision to engage or not engage in any specific misunderstanding with any specific people is probably not going to have a huge impact on the world broadly. Um, it's mostly about you. So let's, uh, let's talk about you. Now, I can't do specific case-by-case -case, uh, situations on how to handle any specific argument because that would take a basically infinite length of time. I do have videos where I talk about what, like, fact-based arguments I would level for uh, a number of issues. And I have a research document, though incomplete, that goes over many of the arguments that I would make and how I would make them and the evidence I would use to support them in specific situations. But without those specifics, the main thing that I want to talk about is rhetoric and presentation. See, people don't like being convinced that they're wrong. In fact, uh, our brains are unmatched in their ability to self-justify, to make us feel that we are right, and to shut out any information that contradicts that. 
on a purely logical level, most people aren't going to be moved over on an incorrect belief they have by arguing with them about it. I mean, it can happen. There are people who are like that. There are people who are rational and calm enough to accept that they've been proven wrong and change their beliefs, but they're in the minority. That is the exception rather than the rule. If you just went up to them, handed them a sheet of facts, you know, provable information that destroyed their argument, you just hand that to them and say, hey, read this. Do you think they would finish reading and go like, ah, okay, well, you know, clearly as a result of this, I've been proven incorrect. No, no, that's not, that is not going to happen with most of them. That's why rhetoric is so important, you know? It's the case in politics. It's the case in interpersonal relationships. Hell, it's the case in science. Rhetoric is essential in convincing other people that you're correct. The information itself is oftentimes, especially when you're talking with friends and family, secondary to the way in which you present the information. Now, I'm not suggesting you say anything wrong. Obviously, it's very important to have your facts straight. But you, if you want to have a reasonable chance of success, you need to know how to present them properly. So, generally speaking, what I'm talking about here is how to handle people who hate you or who hate what you are. You know the Christian love, right? Uh, hate the sin, not the sinner. Maybe your parents love you, but they hate what you are. You know? You understand the difference? In reality, there's not a huge difference, right? Like, that's always been kind of a cop-out, but it's a difference that other people insist on. This imaginary belief that there's a wall that you can draw up between uh, an attack on a person and an attack on what that person is. You, it's, not, it's not really there, but it's something people tend to believe. So, you know, whether they hate you or what you are, Here's a good idea on how to deal with them. Uh, ideas, it's plural. I'm going to ramble for a second here, okay? Um, so first and foremost, if you're dealing with somebody who cares about you in any capacity, I mean like friend, family, even if they're like a, a coworker or a roommate, the most valuable tool that you have to convince them of any position is the empathy they hold for you. See, People have an innate desire to not be proven wrong. We also have an innate desire to get along with people we care about and to be kind to them and to have them be kind to us. Now, obviously, a lot of people are still dicks. It's not a 100% thing, but we are definitely more lenient, more lax, more willing, more gracious when dealing with people that we care about, at least in some respects. Maybe not when it comes to challenging core beliefs, but when it comes to like general stuff, right? I think most people tend to operate that way. If the people around you don't, if your friends and family treat you with all the kindness that you would treat a stranger, uh, you know, I, I don't know. That seems like a, seems like kind of a personal problem. I don't know. That kind of sucks. Uh, but for those of you who do have some compassion held from others around you, uh, you need to keep the person you're talking to from being defensive. So here's a number of scenarios where this is important, okay? I've talked about, you know, if your parents are just casually or invasively uh, hostile towards your lifestyle or what you are, um, if your friends are sort of casually indifferent or ignorant or rude on things pertaining to who you are, your gender identity, sexuality, maybe you have an interracial relationship, maybe this is your religious belief of some kind, anything like that. You don't want them to feel defensive because when people are defensive, they lock up, right? You want to focus on a couple of core things. The first of which, 100%, is being you want them 
to feel they have to prove themselves to you. I know this sounds weird and arbitrary, but it's actually so, 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 so important, okay? Whenever there is a conversation being had where it doesn't feel as though both people are equally invested, a power dynamic is established. If one person really wants to have a convo, but the other person doesn't and isn't that interested, the person who's less interested is in a relative position of power because they're indicating disinterest. In other words, the other person has to prove why it's worth both their time to discuss this. Now, again, this isn't 100%, right? If, you're, if, you're, if your dad's screaming at you, like you can't fold your arms and go like, hmm, looks like I've established dominance over you by proving I don't want to tell. Like, no, to obviously be reasonable here. But generally, in, in, in the context of like calm conversation, your overinvestment is to their benefit and their overinvestment is to your benefit. You want to be calm. You want to uh, be no more engaged than they are because if you are, you're giving them permission and encouraging them uh, effectively to double down and persist in the beliefs or things they're saying that you don't like. You can imagine this pretty easily, right? So We've all seen examples of this uh, online, right? If you are a progressive and you see somebody online who is just kind of being casually problematic, I don't know, maybe they're being a bit racist or something, and you go over there and you're like, um, that is extremely racist of you and I cannot believe you have done this and here are the reasons why and here is the evidence and blah, blah, blah. How often has this worked? Seriously, think in your entire life, how many times has direct, overt, preachy confrontation changed a mind. Never, I've never seen this happen. It doesn't happen, okay? No, it's wipe it clean from your mind. It doesn't happen. But you might notice that there is another strategy, one that people on the left have gotten better at using, that actually is more effective. And it's the kind of subtle social shaming that is associated with unequal interest in a conversation. So... Say that somebody online says something casually racist, not like horrifically, deliberately racist, but let's say racially inconsiderate. And somebody, maybe even you, replies, wow, kind of cringe, bro. Now, the person who made that inconsiderate racist message, maybe they weren't intending to be a bad person. They just said something that was, you know, not great to say. So maybe they feel a bit taken aback. Maybe they see a kind of casual disregard for their position as a, uh, as a, a, a challenge in some way to the sincerity of what they believe, how firm their beliefs are, how right their beliefs are. But if they engage with that, what exactly are they going to do? Now, I've seen this happen a million times. Not every time, nothing's guaranteed, but often. A person says something inconsiderate. People respond with light mockery, maybe joking disregard, maybe like a, oh, cool, wow. You know, like they're indicating two things. One, they don't like what you said, but also really importantly, they don't care that much. You don't go in there to over-explain why you think what they said was wrong, right? You just indicate you don't like it, but like, eh. And if they reply to you, then you can reply back going like, bro, just like, don't do that thing. And if they continue to engage, you notice a successful pattern emerges. The more the person who criticized them 
indicates disinterest, uh, non-engagement, the more likely they are to feel as though they have to over-explain their position. The best example of this that I've seen is asking people to explain dog whistles. So, for instance, do you know the pit bull dog whistle? Uh, this is when somebody will post a picture of a pit bull, or any dog, I guess, and they'll say, isn't it curious that, like... 500% of dog attacks are done by pit bulls, even though they only represent 10% of the dog population. No, 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 no. Now, anybody who's posting a meme, you, you all get, I assume, uh, what the implication is there. Anybody who posts something like that, if you, like, try to preachily explain that they're racist, it's not going to work because they know that they're racist. Like, they know, they know that. Like, you've seen that, right? Where, where, where somebody does something bad, and then a person responds with, you, you're bad! And they're like, well, yeah. We saw this back in 2016 with Donald Trump, right? Like, Hillary Clinton was like, uh, deplorable MAGA voters, you know, Donald Trump, he's a bad man. It's like, I don't care. All you're doing is making them feel cool for being bad, frankly, by acting like a paternalistic, you know, nanny uh, who, who they're defying by being bad, right? But if you asked, hypothetically, if you asked that uh, pit bull meme dog whistle person, uh, what does that mean? Like, sincerely, you know, what does that mean? Uh, I don't get it. Haha, <laughs> smiling, smiley face. In most cases, in real life, they wouldn't respond. But imagine they did, right? There are very few ways that they can respond to that in a way that doesn't implicate themselves. Imagine, for example, if they were like, oh, you know what I mean. You're like, well, no, I, I don't. What, what do you mean? And they're like, ah, well, you know, bl black people. Do you understand the rhetorical problem on their end? The artifice of the dog whistle crumbles if they're forced to explain it. You understand? Now, this doesn't happen that often in real life because people who deliberately dog whistle don't usually explain the dog whistle to defend themselves. But the fact that over-explaining or a request for clarification puts them in a position where if they did do so, they would look quite silly. That's the core of what I'm talking about here. Like if somebody in your friend group makes an inconsiderate comment and you ask them to explain themselves. What, what did you mean by that? I, I don't get it. So often this shuts down casual racism. I mean it. This is like, especially in the, in the workplace, if you have uh, co-workers who are just kind of casually bigoted, all you have to do in many cases, not all, but in many, is to just go like, oh, what do you mean by that? And they will clam up. They will just literally, like, it seems uh, unreasonable. Why would that work so well? Well, the reason for it is because normally when people have bad beliefs, right, they have them as a kind of external, unexamined, uh, uh, let's say, ephemeral, uh, emotional position. They're not rooted in a set of concrete logical arguments. So if a person is casually racist, casually sexist, casually transphobic, they ha they can't root this back to the axiomatic level. They're not they're not going to start explaining like a, you know fundamental ethics or like the meta ethical presuppositions they've made to arrive at the beliefs they hold that made them believe the thing that no they're not going to do that. Almost nobody can do that, and thank God because life would be really annoying if people did that all the time. Uh, but they're the these tenuous beliefs they hold, these biases, these um these concerns they suddenly look really silly when they're taken out of the joking artifice, when they're put in the spotlight, when they're given the space to explain themselves. You know what I mean? You've probably been the victim of this tactic at some point, haven't you? Have you ever done something that was kind of inconsiderate or rude? We all, we all have. And then somebody asks you, why'd you do that? 
Now, there are two ways to respond. There are only two ways to respond to this, okay? One of them is to do what I do and double down. <laughs> where, where you're like, why did I do that? Uh, did what? What do you mean? Ah, I'm just having fun. Right, you can do that. And, right, many people do this, okay? Um, or you immediately feel like a jackass and kind of whimper out an apology. Really, are those not basically the only two roads to go down? Because if you've been rude, even rude by your own definition, you're not going to construct a logical argument to explain why you've been like you're not going to go like uh okay well first of all duh, duh, duh. like maybe if you feel there's some justification and you actually weren't being rude you're only accused of being rude but if you know you've been rude it's doubling down or whimpering an apology right and um i don't think a lot of people are willing to like hardcore double down on yeah i'm super racist if they're called out on being kind of like casually insensitive about race. I know that online it feels like they might do that because Twitter right now is completely inundated with neo-Nazis that Elon Musk is deliberately boosting. So if you go online right now, it might be like, no, every person with reactionary beliefs is willing to fully commit and defend them. It's not true in real life. That's actually like an incredibly small portion of the population. I promise you, in real life, people don't like having their biases confronted, they don't like having to explain themselves, and they are self-conscious when put in a position where they feel they have to justify their behavior. And all of these things, this is what you need to do. What I'm talking about right now is framing. That is, even before the real conversation has been had, even before you put forward any positions, make any arguments, even express any discontent, you have to make sure the context of the conversation is working in your favor. Let's say you're at a party with family, a uh, family gathering or whatever. Uh, an uncle makes an inappropriate joke about gay people. You're gay. You know, you feel maybe you were a bit targeted by that. If you went up to your uncle right there and said, I do not appreciate that comment. I feel that was homophobic and such and such. You know, maybe if your uncle is a nice guy, he'll kowtow right there. But I bet you in a lot of cases, instead, he'll laugh it off. <laughs> Why are you so sensitive? Ah, come on, I was just joking. You're overreacting, that kind of thing. You've all been told that at some point in your lives. That happens to a lot of people when they try to confront reactionary people in their family or friend circle. Um, but if you went up, maybe not right then, but... Uh, maybe later in the party or after in the party or just some point in the future and you indicated in a almost dispassionate way i didn't really like that i thought that kind of sucked and just left it at that i bet he'd be a lot less likely to do the haha you're so oversensitive thing maybe he still will again there are no guarantees but i bet you he'd be less likely to because now the immediate defensive reaction that he would have, which is that you're being oversensitive, you're just reacting in the heat of the moment, that's gone now. Because you waited and you said it calmly. Now, again, maybe he plays it off, but if he doesn't, he might try to defend himself. He might try to explain himself. And that's what you want, because a dispassionate comment from you has now elicited from him a passionate or at least engaged response. And... Depending on how things play out, how sincere he is, or how much you feel he cares about your opinion, it's possible for you to play this right there or to continue playing it up down the road. You can say, and, and you, can, you can delay the conversation. You can say, oh, I, I didn't want to argue about you. Or I didn't, I didn't want to argue about this with you. Just, I'm just saying, you know? And then, like, walk off. That'll burn in him. 
you know? If your uncle cares about you at all, like, that, that'll hit. This, like, I'm just disappointed. Like, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. People hate feeling like they're the victim of that. Because now, exactly, Nikolai Prime, if a confrontation is to happen, you now have the upper hand because they are the one who has to initiate it. They're the one who has to justify it. And if no confrontation is had from this, you're still in a better position because now, whenever your uncle does something like that, makes an insensitive comment about gay people, he'll feel your eyes burning on the back of his neck. You understand? You make them uncomfortable. And that discomfort may feel a bit mean to inflict on other people, but we're talking about serious stuff here. We're talking about, you know, issues of, of bigotry and hatred in an era of rapidly rising social and interpersonal violence against queer people. I think it's acceptable to use the rhetorical and framing strategies most likely to get the people around you to be empathetic to what you have to say. I don't think that's rude or inconsiderate of you. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think it's quite considerate because you're acting with an understanding of how they're feeling. Because keep in mind, if their behavior is truly intolerable to you, the other road this could go down is just you never speak with this person again. You cut ties with your uncle, your friends, your mother, your father, your grandparents. And that, in the long run, leads to a lot more harm. The best case scenario here is that something you do elicits sympathy in the person you're talking to, and that allows you to maintain a relationship that is mutually respectful. And if in the path towards that, they have to feel self-conscious about the bad things they've said, you understand? It's fine. Now, this isn't about making people feel bad. It's about getting them to stop making you feel bad. And I genuinely think the underlying principles of this uh, fit no matter how outwardly aggressive or abusive the people around you are being. Being dispassionate, being calm, not giving them a justification in their outburst towards you, but rather letting them come to you, pulling back on them, making them feel they have to justify themselves to you, that is the core of moving over people that you care about. And by the way, this is a classic relationship strategy thing, and anybody who's watching this right now who is like an adult will understand this. If you're having an argument with your significant other and they have been rude to you, so overwhelmingly it is the case that if you just confront them right then and there, and like, that was rude of you, that was wrong of you, da-da. How many times does this fix the problem? It doesn't. It just escalates the argument. They get defensive, you get offensive, then defensive, back and forth and back and forth. You know for a fact that letting things calm for a minute, or, or ten, or whatever, and then bringing it to them, almost always better. And oftentimes the reason for that is because the time allows them to sit on what you know uh, what they've done and and maybe they um you know maybe they feel bad or at least are more open to being talked to about it so in specifics here right i've talked a lot about family as an example because that's what i, I get emails on the most often right how do i you know my brother my mother my father they're falling down the um 
uh, you know, they're, they're being more reactionary, this, that, the other. Well, especially with parents who have direct power over you, if you're young and you live with them, you have to be really careful when engaging with them uh, on any kind of disagreement, because again, your safety is priority number one. But if you feel you can engage with them, right, just don't act like the stereotype that they want to make you. Basically, imagine a conservative, S like a, a conservative caricature of an SJW and be the opposite of that. The reason this works is because the conservative caricature of an SJW is maximized to make people as unlikely as possible to carefully consider their arguments. One good example of this would be Big Red. You know that lady who was at the conference who had the red hair? Now, reactionaries love Big Red because she's a shouty lady and she's got red hair. But um, if you listen to anything that she said in like the video of her arguing with the men's rights guys around her, I don't think she said much at all unreasonable. Like she was fine. Like she was fine. It wasn't even that she was right. It was like she wasn't even, she was just yelling. Like multiple people were yelling there, you know? It was pretty normal. The way she looked, though, gave people an image. I bet you a lot of people who have used the image of her have never actually seen the video or heard her words. But there's a stereotype that they like to imagine. And the stereotype of an SJW that these people hold dear to their hearts that maximizes the chance that whatever they say is ignored is you have to be preachy, you have to be unhappy, you have to be unintelligent, and you have to be overly earnest. These are the stereotypes of an SJW, right? It's not enough that they be preachy on their own. Many people are preachy. The right wing likes people who preach if they agree with the things they preach on. Uh, overly earnest, they cannot let it go. They persist. They follow you from, uh, from, from, from scene to scene. They can't let it go. They can't let you live. They're over-involved. They have nothing going on in their lives except for bothering you about this, right? Uh, unhappy, this is critical. Do you ever see right-wingers gloat over the perception of SJWs being happy? Is that a stereotype you're familiar with that you might see, you know, in an image or a video? Do they ever look like they're happy? No, they look miserable, they're screeching, and this is necessary because it plays into the idea that being an SJW is a mutually destructive bargain. It's not that the SJW has fun at the expense of the poor white men or whatever. It is that in a, uh, a you know, a, a vicious and animalistic sense, the SJW tears down everyone around them. The trans person in the eye of a conservative can never be made happy by their transition. Even though conservatives argue that trans people are just degenerates, that they're innately morally wrong, they must also argue that transitioning brings suffering to those who do it. That uh, there are medical complications or the delusions or nothing gets fixed or da 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 Why are these arguments necessary when the right makes fundamentalist arguments against trans people? If you're calling them degenerates, you don't need to then argue that they're also unhappy to deter people from being trans. The fact that it's degenerate should be enough for them, but no. It is because, as humans with the capacity for empathy, we are more positively inclined towards people who seem to be having a good time. We consider happiness as a marker of moral virtue. We see it as an indicator 
of one's well-being. This is why the SJW can never be happy. It's why people would always cite that Jordan Peterson thing that he hypocritically said, that you must clean your own room before you can change the world. The idea that these people can't run their own lives, much less other people's. They're miserable. They're dragging those around them down. They're causing harm to themselves and others. In the case of feminist SJWs, they're uh, moving away from what it means to be a woman. Women are supposed to be like this, so if they're not, it is what is causing them unhappiness. This is why the right circle jerks over the belief that feminists secretly all crave conservative chud dick, which is statistically and mathematically not the case, but it's a fantasy they indulge in because they want their opponents to be miserable. We do this too. We are all aware of the fact that online Nazis are miserable people who have horrible lives, and we revel in it because to a large extent they cause it for themselves. We also engage in this behavior and understanding that the misery and the unhappiness and the poor life discipline of our political opposition makes them less trustworthy, less enviable, and more of a political mockery. So be happy. Don't give them that stereotype. Be pleasant. Even if you're not outwardly happy, even if you're having a bad time, and that's fine, we're all humans, you have to exercise emotional control. Emotional control is vital to any good rhetoric. You need to project the image of a level person who is capable of seeing the humor, the good, in things you disagree with. This is one of the things that I think has historically made me pretty effective at talking to people on the right. I can laugh at problematic jokes. I make problematic jokes. And in so doing, I indicate that I'm not joyless. I don't represent some political affront to the concept of humor. I find lots of stuff funny. Uh, you know, even if I politically disagree with the people who make those jokes, or sometimes even the content of those jokes. I think that people on the left on both a political and interpersonal level, would have an easier time winning over people on the right if we were better at making it clear that even if we have disagreements, even if we have problems, we can still find joy in things that we, yeah, you know. And we can. You guys can. That's something you're all capable of. So make sure other people understand that too. Don't let them see you unhappy. Don't let them see you acting preachy. And don't be overly involved. Just be the calm in the storm and let it justify itself to you. Nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but in many cases, nobody has convinced a friend or family member to move away from these positions through exaggerated or deliberate upsetness of confronting them, of screaming, of crying of being upset, of saying this little joke is actually a microaggression and you have hurt me in doing so because the more you overstate the case, the more upset you are, the easier it is for them to call you hysterical, overreacting. You understand? I know it's difficult to say, right? Like, well, you're confronting some serious, um, some serious social ills. You're, 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 you're trying to create a space where your friends and family aren't going to make you feel like shit for who you are, aren't going to, uh, you know, worsen your life. These are high stakes, and I understand why people can get emotional, but it is so, so, so important 
that you be calm when doing so. It's vital. So with all that being established, congratulations. We've talked about framing. We haven't even talked about the argument, okay? Be calm. Be happy, or at least neutral. Be level. It's very important. Don't be overly involved. Let them come to you. And don't... <laughs> yeah, don't let them think you're triggered. It's very important. But when it comes to the argument itself, well, that's an entirely different story. See, framing is just about setting up the pieces, the, the chessboard, to begin the argument. The argument itself, as it happens, actually quite critical. Uh, relying on empathy is one thing. Typically, I don't actually think it works that well as an argument. I think that empathy is a good thing to take in mind when you're constructing the framing. But as an argument on its own, if a person's care for you was sufficient to move them from reactionary positions, they probably already would have, right? Like, think about it. If just caring about you was enough, you wouldn't have these problems, unless they don't care at you, for you at all. But if they don't care for you at all and they're your friend, they shouldn't be. And if they don't care for you at all and they're a family member, then, then your problems extend beyond what I'm capable of discussing here. I assume that in most cases, the people giving you grief are people who have, at least when it comes to friends and family, some level of investment in, uh, in, in, in how you feel and who you are and what you are. Uh, so the argument itself, right. Okay. So stats based stuff, making statistical arguments, breaking stuff down on that level. Don't do this. Don't, don't do this. People shut down when you start bringing evidence to the conversation. Okay. The reason for this, yeah, nerd emoji. The reason for this is because, as I said before, oftentimes the reactionary positions they hold, the things they've said, are a kind of like amorphous bias that they don't really want directly challenged because they also can't really directly defend it. You understand what I mean? If it's uncomfortable enough for them to have a conversation about these biases because it's not something they're fully prepared for and it's not something they necessarily want to do. Um, and then you go ahead and you like bring a bunch of data or to, the, to the conversation like, okay, no, 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 no. This guy's you have to uh, understand why they believe the things they believe. And in basically all cases, it's not going to be because of data and statistics. Dog, I understand data and statistics, okay? I've argued with people and cited data and statistics. How many people in the history of my channel have been moved away from the belief that white people are being destroyed by non-white people in this country by data. How many people have been convinced by data on the trans regret rate or on, say, the, um, the math pertaining to, uh, you know, the abuse of children and the need for sex education to help prevent abuse? Uh, what about, you know, arguments pertaining to how children are often better off when they have gay parents than if they have straight parents. Doesn't work, does it? The facts are important to keep in your back pocket because they can help influence the arguments you make, but the direct citation of statistics is often unnerving to people who are not specifically coded for this. You're the case for this as well. 
I'll give you an example. Imagine you're having an argument with a loved one, a, a significant other, and you've done something they find aggravating. I don't even know what it is. It's just some way in which you order your life. They don't like it. You're having a passionate conversation. You really want to keep doing the thing. They don't want you to keep doing it. And then they pull out a study. Did you know that in a 12-year longitudinal analysis comprising of 72 pairs, couples, 73% of people who did the thing I'm suggesting ended up reporting better life outcomes at the end? Be real for a second and don't front. Do you seriously think that would stop you? Like you're in the middle of having this passionate conversation. Do you really, truly, genuinely think that you would just stop and go, oh, well, I, I guess I have no choice. I would call them a bitch. Yeah, yeah, that seems more reasonable. That seems more likely. Um, maybe you'd be interested in looking at the study, but like that's just not how people tend to work. That's not how people tend to work. How long did you have this prepared? Exactly. You could deflect. You could go to other things. You might feel betrayed that they're so over-invested in this conversation that they would, like, have data ready or, like, that you would feel kind of beleaguered or even bullied that you're trying to have a passionate conversation with somebody you love and they're trying to, like, rest it away and turn it into this clinical, like, science thing. And you're and, and in your mind, you're thinking, well, it's not exactly like that. I'm not... The, the cases aren't exactly the same as the story. You know, it's a different thing. Like, or what if I'm the exception? I think blah, blah, blah. Like... Trust me, I've had a lot of arguments on stream and off stream, okay? I'm an argumentative guy. This doesn't work, all right? Even the people in chat who are like, uh, I'm autistic, so it would work with you. No, it wouldn't. I'm autistic, so I can tell you that it doesn't. Also, autistic people are more likely, if anything, to break down screaming if um, they're uh, having a heated emotional argument, okay? I have dated and been with autistic people. Do not pretend that you're all cold emotional robots, because you're not, all right? Don't you fucking front. Um... So, uh, so don't do this. <laughs> I am a surgeon, Dr. Han. I am a surgeon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, don't, don't do this. Um, instead, you have to understand where their beliefs are coming from. And there are a lot of potentially reactionary beliefs that you could be confronting here. If the reactionary beliefs that they hold have to do with, let's say, laissez-faire or bootstrap economics. I bet a lot of people have dads who are like this, who don't really like harass you much day to day, but you're kind of bothered at the fact that they seem to be really contemptuous of poor people, and they seem to believe that anyone can make it if they try, and therefore those who haven't made it aren't trying, so it's their fault. And it's like, yeah. In many cases, those beliefs don't come from a mathematical understanding of the economy. If they understood the economy, they wouldn't believe that. It often comes from survivorship bias, or it comes from a coping mechanism that people have to feel like they're not a victim when they themselves have suffered hardship. A lot of people who aren't doing that well economically don't want to believe that it's all just chance or that there's some um, force in the world they can't directly control, so they want to blame themselves. You've probably done this in stuff in your life, too. You've probably blamed yourself for stuff that was just... Uh, causality that was just chance that you didn't have much or any control over but sometimes it feels nice to assert control over something even if the outcomes were negative you know even if the results weren't what you wanted to be able to plant your feet and say no that was me makes you feel like you're stepping up you're taking charge 
you are the one willing to take responsibility when all these other poor people aren't. They're all blaming the government. They're blaming corporations. But you know you could have just tried harder. I bet you a lot of people you know who have those beliefs, those bootstrappy beliefs, they feel that way. They might also have a kind of survivorship bias where they're under the impression that the reason they made it when all the people from the hood or from their old hometown or from their family didn't is because all those people sucked and they worked really hard for it.